So glad you're here. My name is Kyle, and this is Uplift, and I am uh, so glad and grateful that you were here. I just want to tell you that uh, this message and all of our message, are all, they're, they're also streamed on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class. They're also posted on our uh, podcast called Anchor Point. So however you're listening and finding this, uh, we are so glad that you were here. We're beginning a new series over the Gospel John, and the series is called That You May Believe. It's a short series over the most unique of the four Gospels. And it's actually inspired by one of John's final sentences in the Gospel. And it's from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I want to read this. Here we go. It's actually at the top of your order of worship. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The stated purpose of this gospel is for you to believe. And believe it or not, see what I did there? Believe it or not, that was a good joke. <laughs> Believing is not always a very simple idea because the question now, the question is not, what should I believe? Now the question is, why should I believe at all? Why should I believe? Our culture has introduced and championed personal self-expression and self-revelation. Y'all, we love ourselves. We love ourselves now. We love selfies of ourselves. We love our opinions. And all the while, we've abandoned, our culture has abandoned absolutes for what really and truly is ambiguity. I mean, think about this. Eight billion people on the planet multiplied by a multitude of opinions every single day it's created a world where nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing is sacred. Absolutes are now ambiguous. So this series over the next few weeks is to combat that. Now, we're not going to go through the Gospel of John verse by verse. We're not even going to go chapter by chapter. But rather, we're going to look at the themes of this Gospel in hopes that really said another way, you don't stop believing. So let's get right to it by jumping into this sea of ambiguity and asking, let's ask that question. Why, why should we believe in the first place? Because that's the question that I've been asked. When I've tried to disciple and study, people want to know, what, what does this matter? Why should I believe in the first place? So that's what we're going to answer tonight. And the reason why we should believe is actually answered in these two verses. So tonight, I think there are just a couple of reasons. There's two reasons why we should believe. And in particular, the stated purpose of these passages that Jesus is the Son of God and He's the Christ. There are two reasons. First, the reason why we should believe is that this is the truth. It's the truth. This is something to believe in. It's real. It's substantiated. It's not fiction. Now, to show you this, we're going to have to do a small divergence into the meaning of truth, the definition of truth, and how our world and how our culture approaches truth. Truth. So there are a couple of these. First, there's a definition of truth that champions a worldview of absolutes. And we call this objective truth. That morality is real. The reality of morality. The reality of right and wrong. Good and evil. There are absolutes. And there's also a definition of truth that champions a worldview of relativism. A worldview where the concepts of 
rightness and wrongness vary. It's a worldview absent of any absolute moral code. And we call this subjective truth. You probably heard these before. Now, there's a difference between the two. And honestly, we need to be aware of this difference because the version of truth that we adopt is the catalyst that actually shapes us. Because we make decisions, big decisions, life decisions. We even make small, germane decisions based upon which version of truth we believe. I mean, it's not, it's not too small to say that the very course of your life is shaped by how you define truth. So here's the difference in really simple terms. First, objective truth, it corresponds with reality. It's a truth that's absolute. Whether or not it has universal agreement, whether you agree with it or not, it's always true. Subjective truth, in simple terms, it's just personal opinions. Personal opinions. Now, we're seeing something right now in our culture, I think, in a pretty remarkable way. What we're seeing is the exchange of objective truth for subjective truth. I really think that we are watching the tide of subjective truth cover most of the things that we all once thought were immutable, which are immutable, but we're seeing things being thought of differently. Let me show you this. For instance, the statement that God exists, that very statement, was once an objective statement in the world. It was an absolute to which no one or at least very few people even disagreed. But now it's become pretty subjective, right? The statement now is you may think God exists, but I don't. He may exist for you, but he doesn't exist for me. You see what happens? There's an exchange there. In fact, I want to show you a quote. In just the recent few weeks, a prominent and well-known pastor posted this statement on his Facebook page. This is what he wrote. Just a friendly reminder that usually when people say the Bible is clear about this, what they should be saying is, my understanding of what the Bible says about this is clear. Now, listen, just based upon our preliminary observations here in the last few moments, it's probably pretty easy to see that there is some sleight of hand in this statement, right? Because there really seems to be some objective truth here. Let, let, me, let me show you. I'm going to show you what it is. First, there is, a, there is an element of rightness here. We're, we're not given full revelation of all things. We don't know everything. And we're not going to be given full revelation of all things until Jesus returns. So that's true. Also, let me give you another example. Just kind of to kind of slide into this comment here. Let's talk about how the Bible talks about hell for just a minute. All right? So hell is mentioned in Scripture as a, a place of darkness. But it's also mentioned in Scripture as a place of fire. And both of those can't be true, right? Because if there's fire, there's no more darkness, right? So what we've learned is that what that these, uh, these are metaphors for what separation from God is going to be like. So, so yes, in, in this instance, our understanding of Scripture is there's some interpretive aspects to this, and it's probably going to change. Let me give you a third, a third way that some of this statement is true. There are actually multiple variations on how to interpret the Bible. I want to show you something. Get this. There are more than 200 major Protestant denominations in America. More than 200. And actually, that number, if you look at it globally, could be in the thousands. There are also an estimated 35,000 independent 
or non-denominational churches in America. And these churches, they have no religious or organizational affiliations. Now, I'm showing you these numbers for one specific reason, is that there are literally thousands of variations of how people have interpreted Scripture. They built whole churches around it. And each of the churches in this data, each denomination has its own doctrine based upon its own interpretation. So yes, the statement posted by that pastor has some objective truth in it. There isn't just one global church with just one shared doctrine and one shared interpretation, but the statement also has and champions subjectivity. Now, in spite of the, the pastor's comment, whether it was harmless or meaningless is irrelevant. The Bible is pretty clear about a few things. Let me give you a few. It's clear about God's intent in creation. It's clear about God's sending of Jesus. It's clear about the death of Jesus. It's clear about the reason for the death of Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself said that in Mark, that he died as a ransom for many. The Bible is clear about the resurrection of Jesus. We know from Scripture the letters and the purposes of Paul. We know Paul's own travels. We know the churches he planted. We know the people with whom he traveled. We know these things. We know the wages of sin. We know the importance of relational stability and heterosexual marital purity. The list can go on and on and on. We know these things for fact. These things are not bound by my understanding or my interpretation. They're not going to fluctuate based upon how you see them. These are not subjective things. So let's keep pushing this a little further. Let's keep going a little further. Because even if we wonder about the the relativity, the relativity and the subjectiveness or the objectiveness of truth, there is actually a way to claim truth philosophically. Not even with Scripture. You can do this logically. I want to introduce you to a guy's name is William Lane Craig. I, I would invite you to write that name down. He's got a ton of books. He's a prominent philosopher. He's a believer, loves Jesus. Here's a little bit about him. He's the visiting scholar of philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology and professor of philosophy here in Houston at the Houston Christian University. Dr. Craig has written over 30 books, including this one called Reasonable Faith. I would encourage you to buy this if you're looking for a good book. And in 2016, he was named one of the 50 most influential living philosophers by the journal The Best Schools. Now, Dr. Craig has a very simple and concise way to show the objective truth, and in particular, the objective truth of God's existence. And he calls this his moral argument. He believes and he teaches that there is an objective moral argument to be made for the objective truth of God's existence. In other words, Craig says that the existence of morality, itself an objective truth, proves the existence of God. Three simple ways. Here they are. Here's his thought process. First, he says, you can logically follow this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. In other words, if God is not real, then we have a license to see everything subjectively. Nothing's absolute. We can do whatever we want. Life is, life is not dependent upon Jesus if God doesn't exist. But, but we don't. We don't have a license to see the world this way. We don't have a license to do what everyone to do because, number two, moral values do exist. Moral values do exist. Now, you may look at this and think, well, of course they do. But let me tell you that a lot of philosophers and scholars who are atheists have, have actually attempted to explain 
morality in biological or sociological terms. There are, there's tons of literature explaining that we act in certain ways because of the culture around us or because our society has expectations for behavior. But such an argument is actually pretty demeaning. It actually reduces us to nothing more than animals because that sort of idea says that we're just inherently tribal. And there's a lot of peer pressure that decides how we're supposed to act. But we actually know from lived experience that there are moral absolutes. We know this from right and wrong. We know that there is right and wrong and good and evil. How do we know? Pretty easy. Because people hurt people. That's how we know. I mean, I want you to consider this. If moral values don't exist, then neither does suffering. I mean, it's just, just your opinion. What's pain? If there's morality, then what, what, is, what is pain? If, if this is right, if there's no such thing as, as, as moral values, there's no such thing as good or evil in a subjective world. There's no such thing as unfairness or inequality in a subjective world. If everything is only based on feelings and emotions relative to place and time. Which means, if that's true, right, that Anything we believe to be heinous and hurtful, it doesn't exist in a subjective world. It doesn't. If moral values don't exist, there's no such thing as an innocent becoming a victim. It doesn't work. We know, because we've been hurt, that morality does exist. Because people hurt people. That's the case, number three here, in this moral argument for the existence of God. God does exist. And this is the truth. This is the truth. This is why we believe the first part of this. This is truthful. God is real. And if he's real, according to John's passage, he has a son named Jesus, who is the Christ. And this Jesus is a real historical person. Now listen, there's a whole lot to debate in life. For instance, who's going to win the NCAA tournament? We can talk about that till we're blue in the face, but this is not up for debate. This is truth. You can believe this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because it is absolute. That's the first reason why we believe. Here's the second reason. We believe because it's also the life. It's the truth, and it's the life. This is what John says. We believe to have life in his name. Let's look at this. John chapter 20. Let's read these again. Verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We've substantiated the object of our belief. that Jesus is real. He is the Christ. He's the Son of God. We can believe this. But it is important right now to notice an important thematic element in John's gospel about, specifically about believing. Now listen to this. This is a big one. This is a big one. It's worth writing down and checking. John never, not one time in the entire gospel, uses the nouns faith or belief. Not one time. Doesn't use these nouns. He instead only uses the verb believe with a V. That's the only way he refers to this. And he uses this verb 98 times. In other words, 
Belief is not static. It's not something done at the moment of your baptism and then completed. Belief is active. It's a motion. It's a movement. It's an action that gives life. But let's be skeptics. How in the world does this happen? How does believing, how does having faith actually give life? Well, praise the Lord. John tells us. This is in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Let's read what he says. John wrote that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look at that. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John wrote something special here. He wrote that receiving Jesus is the same thing as believing in Jesus. Receiving equals believing. Now let's talk about that for a minute. There are three things here worth mentioning from this passage that define this equation. Here's the first. John wrote that we receive Jesus. Now that's a pretty profound statement. We receive Jesus. In other words, Jesus is to be received. It's not the other way around. We don't grovel for his affections. We don't go on some quest to find the peace of Jesus. Jesus is ever present. He's made himself available. We receive him. And he waits on us to receive him. We receive Jesus. Here's the second part of this. God wills for us to receive Jesus. He wills it. It is his will that this happens. This action of receiving Jesus is not an action done alone. God's will is sovereign in this partnership. Listen, never, ever, ever weight our personal responsibility over the will of God. We are children of God because God wills it to be so. Those who receive Jesus do so at the Father's will. Listen, don't let the mysteriousness this, the mysteriousness of this overshadow the absolute joy of this. You're born of God because God wants you to be. You are loved deeply. All of your mistakes and regrets and hurts, they're no match for the magnetic will of God to draw you. You receive God, you believe God because it's God's will. Look, this is powerful teaching, y'all, and I know this, but John isn't alone in writing and teaching this. I want to show you how Paul describes this very action, and this is from Galatians chapter 1. Look at this. Grace to you, Paul wrote, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our very deliverance is the will of God. Multiple attestations in the New Testament. And here's the third thing about this, this equation. What it means. We receive Jesus and we want nothing else. We want nothing else. Our reception of Jesus is the belief the belief that he is all satisfying. John actually tells us this later. It's in John chapter 6, verse 35. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me 
shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. Let's break this down. In John chapter 1, receiving and believing are synonymous. Here in John chapter 6, coming and believing are synonymous. Why does this matter? Because all three are the same. They're all the same. Receiving is coming to Jesus and, and believing, which is believing in Jesus. This, by the way, this isn't a come to Jesus because we're so far from him. My earlier statement is still true. We don't grovel for Jesus' affection. We don't quest for him. Jesus is ever-present regardless of where we are. What we find here, though, is a powerful metaphor that receiving and believing in Jesus are both like never, ever, ever being hungry or thirsty ever again. And when we believe, This is why we believe. When we believe in Jesus and find life in his name, we also, we also find ourselves at funerals for our own temporary selfish pursuits. And that's why we believe. I want to close tonight by showing you a picture. I don't know if you know who this is. If you're a classic rock fan, you might know. This is Jonathan Cain. Jonathan Cain. Jonathan Cain, of course, you know I'm going to have to talk about this, is the keyboardist for the band Journey. But he wasn't the first keyboardist for the band Journey. The original keyboardist was a guy named Greg Raleigh. Greg Raleigh left the band in 1980 when Journey decided to make some artistic changes to their music. So upon his departure, it was amicable. Greg Raleigh recommended that the band Journey add Jonathan Cain, this guy, as its new permanent keyboardist. So Cain accepted, began to work with the band on its next album. The album is called Escape, and it was released in 1981. Now, in preparation for the release of this album, the band rented a warehouse in Oakland, California, and they got to work on some new songs for the album. And as they were working on these new songs, it was this guy, Jonathan Cain, the new keyboardist, the replacement, the guy they didn't, they didn't, he won the original, he's the new guy, who wrote, it was this guy who wrote the musical hook to one of Journey's best known songs. You know it, it's the title of this message, Don't Stop Believing. This guy wrote that. He wrote the hook and he wrote the title of the song. And here's how that happened. The title of that song was the phrase that Jonathan Cain's dad told him when he doubted that he would ever make it as a successful musician. He'd call his dad, and his dad would say, don't stop believing, or you're done, dude. Don't stop believing. So listen, the replacement keyboardist who refused to stop believing wrote the hook, the opening keyboard riff, and the title of Rolling Stone's 133rd greatest songs of all time out of the 500 they, they selected. And he wrote the hook and the riff for the best-selling digital song of the 20th century because he didn't stop believing. That's amazing. Now, I didn't tell you this earlier, but this is how I want you to, I want you, I want to leave you with this. I didn't tell you this, but John's verb choice to believe is most often used in the present tense in his gospel, which means that John meant to communicate that believing in Jesus is an active, persistent, constant 
action. It's repeatable. It's done now, and then it's done now. It's done every moment for the rest of our lives. Said another way, John told us, don't stop believing. Don't. There's life in Jesus, and it's yours for the taking. It's yours.